I don't think I'm alone when I say I miss my family right now. I've mentioned it a few times on the pod already, but I recently moved to Singapore from Australia on Valentine's Day 2020, actually. Every week I have a video call with my family, and while it's great catching up, it really isn't the same thing. And I guess I've been reflecting on this recently because I was actually meant to be back in my home city last month as part of a work trip, but that didn't happen for obvious reasons. And missing loved ones isn't uncommon for expats or international students or others living abroad, but I guess now we're not alone in feeling that way. A lot of us can't see family even in the same city. And surprisingly for me, it's not just about hugging family, it's also about shaking hands with colleagues. The speed of change, constantly being online and missing familiar faces is tiring. Students and educators are not immune to this either, and they're feeling the pressure. And while there are a heap of articles on digital fatigue from online work during COVID-19, I recently came across a blog on London School of Economics about digital fatigue in primary school education. The author, Dr. Gerda Elvizo, argues the things that we're missing the most at the moment, socialising and community, are integral to education too. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you happen to find yourself in the world at the moment, and welcome to the QS in Conversation pod. I'm Anton John Crace, and I'm the editor and program designer at QS Cockerley Simmons. This week on the pod, Dr. Gerda will join us to discuss how educators and students are feeling digital fatigue, the meaning behind the term COVIDgogy, and what needs to be done to overcome this anxiety. Welcome to the show, Gyota. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Anton. It's a great uh, honor and an opportunity to reflect on some of my insights and preliminary research findings. Absolutely. And the reason we've connected is I came across an article that you'd written on the London School of Economics, which was around virtual schooling uh, COVID Goji, which I think is the first time I've heard that um, expression, and digital fatigue in particular, and we're talking about digital fatigue in education. Can you explain to me what is digital fatigue in the education space? I think it's the kind of overload from constantly being online and multitasking in a digital education space. Obviously, distance and remote learning educators have factored in aspects of designing and delivering courses online. But COVID and the urgency of it exacerbated a lot of negative aspects. Not only we were teaching online, but a lot of other aspects were online too. Socializing, shopping, entertaining. And on top of that, the whole family being stuck indoors and having to carry out different aspects of our lives digitally. That kind of plus having all the anxieties of dealing with a pandemic, dealing with not seeing other people physically, dealing with anxieties of having family in other places. It created a a sense of intensity and anxiety that was unprecedented and also caused lots of aspects of fatigue from the constantly multitasking. There is also obviously aspect of the cognitive overload as a result of communicating remotely and the changes in working patterns and behaviors, the blending of the private and the public, if you like. 
there's a mix of things that kind of created a the sense of overload and a lot of mental and intellectual fatigue. There's also these aspects of um, the interpersonal cues are completely different from if you have meetings online all the time and at the same time you're trying to facilitate a self-directed learning for your kids to, you know, to, to do things uh, that they have to do to go along or trying to segment, segment the time between kids, between partners. So yes, absolutely. Between tasks. So that, that, that aspect was something that complicated things and created lots of um, problems. I think that that's a really good point to bring up as well in terms of it's not just affecting students' abilities to learn, but also educators' abilities to educate as well. You brought up a couple of interesting points around cognitive overload, the blending of the private and public. And I know that we've joked a lot about, now I can go to a business meeting while wearing a t-shirt. But if we look a little bit further with your research, I know it's only preliminary, but what are sort of the follow on impacts of this fatigue that is being experienced? Universities are in a dire strait of having to prepare for blended learning and in all sorts of models, like having sessions that are physical and face-to-face, but are recorded for students who are not able to participate for all sorts of reasons. Mm. And that's going to create a new havoc. There's a lot of anxiety uh, talking to colleagues from residential universities and a lot of people prepare for all sorts of scenarios, but the working time and the workload is double and triple. There's a lot of other impacts as well. You have to account for different time zones. You have to factor in the large cohort of international students, students who may not have had experience of these kind of settings before. You also have to, I think, to not only to create live sessions, but also pre-recorded sessions that are on video and they can be accessed on an asynchronous manner, which is the best thing, I think, given the circumstances. But even for that, and especially if you have to deal now in higher education within, with student bodies that are largely international, you have to account for issues, not only of issues of accessibility, but issues of censorship copyright, firewalls. Uh, Students in China, for example, cannot access Google in the same way that students in the UK have the chance to to access it or YouTube, the different sorts of firewalls. And that affects a lot the way that lecturers are designing their curriculum. So there's a lot of discussions around that at the moment. And that has a huge impact on the way that the learning design not only the pedagogical, but also the kind of resources that are available or the the kind of, especially within the social sciences, that has a huge impact. Mm, That's um, a good point. So so there's another host of issues there that is quite interesting and in terms of like the delivery and the design of the courses, having to factor in all these blended models and the models at a distance. In terms of like what other aspects that have to be factored in, the best way would be to return to a sort of normality or a blended approach that has um, embedded a lot more time for pastoral care. 
pastoral care is an activity which supports the well-being, um, health and well-being, mental health, welfare, and engagement with the students to kind of develop a sense of a learning community. So pastoral care, I think, in both school settings and in higher education settings is quite important. Absolutely. It's interesting listening to you speak. Uh, I've just made a note of this. You've mentioned anxiety quite a few times. And I think that not just students or educators, but workers and everyone, everyone else is feeling a level of anxiety and the importance of pastoral care and socialization. Um, but as I mentioned, your article uses the term COVIDgogy, which I hadn't, hadn't come across before. Can you sort of in a nutshell, what is COVIDgogy? COVIDgogy is, is my term. Um, but I was inspired by an article that I read on the American National Public Radio, which used the term panic goji, teaching online classes during the coronavirus pandemic. So I adapted, but I kind of encapsulated it. It was just like this, accumula- the, the sheer accumulation of lots of online resources and the sheer aspirational urgency, if you like, from media institutions, educational institutions, uh, celebrity, uh, online celebrities and so on to just offer what they could through social media and through digital media to educate the masses uh, Mm. during the the pandemic uh, at the drop of a hat. So one hand is this sheer urgency and immediacy of accumulation of resources and sort of uh, an urge to do something but also has a a negative or more sinister aspect. This sort of like, A, too much, too soon. And the advice in this article as well, referring to higher education is try to do less. Hold on to things that might work and just concentrate and do less and offer more, you know, sort of simpler approaches that may enable people to access their learning at their own time and then offer some sort of pastoral care or some guidance through live sessions. Because the thing that this entailed, the COVID OG, is was that lots of schools and sometimes universities were trying or were expecting to replicate the face-to-face setting at a live online setting that happened for way too long. I think the best approach for schools and to a certain extent for universities was to do a combination of asynchronous, pre-recorded videos and then factored in a combination of paper-based and online resources that offered guidance and enabled students or parents to follow the videos, follow instructions and sort of like scaffold their own learning gradually. That's actually interesting you bring that up because that's coming up quite often prior to COVID-19 where it was the ability for students, primarily in the higher education sector, but somewhat in the uh, secondary and primary that they could path out their own degree or or their own own educational experience a little bit. Well, it varies. And obviously there is a certain uh, learning design that has to be You can't just put a video there and expect everyone to... uh, There's ways to deliver videos and ways to deliver videos. And obviously, 
even if you do make a video and you have like a PowerPoint uh, or a presentation and a talking head, you know, embedded, that's the best way. But also you kind of sometimes need to pre-explain what their learning outcomes are, what the instructions or guidance points you you have to kind of factor in timings and cues if you if you're expecting students to follow it and pause videos to to run an activity and then return to it there was a steep learning curve for people that were not familiar with doing that mm, and yeah. but it kind of worked uh, much better I think than doing things at live sessions for hours on end which I think is deeply catastrophic <laughs> pedagogically especially for for younger students. A lot of what you're pointing out in terms of covagogy where it's this overexcitement and a lot of ideas uh, in the latest edition of the QS Global Education News there are quite a few stories that were submitted which were talking about the level of analytics and decisions they had to make in terms of, uh, okay, so are we going to have our classrooms in person? If so, then we need to have social distancing. How do you have social distancing in a huge uh, lecture hall compared to a small classroom? I know there's some very yeah. cute pictures of primary schools where they've set up the desks apart and they have little uh, perspex screens so that the students don't cough and breathe into each other as well. So yeah. I, I like your explanation of a covagogy and that it's an explosion of ideas, but equally an explosion of um, an explosion of overwhelming ideas as well. Yeah. And, 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 and the thing is like, yeah, I mean, it's the analytics, you quite rightly say, there's a lot of evaluations that are coming out now. There's lots of research projects that came out about, you know, inequalities in, in especially in the sector of schooling and the randomness of, of the approaches, right? Sometimes people worked with what they had available and they did their best. And other times people tried to do too much too soon. And then there's all sorts of, particularly for the schooling section, all these issues about analytics, data, big data, all these things that are collected for whom are the, the right safeguards taking place. There's loads of breaches of safeguarding occurring all the time. Yeah, that's a very good um, point. And, there's, and then again, what sort of analytics are collected by whom, you know, I mean, there's difference running things on Zoom. There, there was the issues about privacy and Zoom and kids being on Zoom and under whose identity and all the rest. It's been all over the news, obviously, about the types of data that Zoom collected from children. There's lots of other things about Alexa and all the sort of virtual assistants you know, voice recordings and, and all the rest. And plus all the schools didn't have the right consent forms from parents for releasing things on their own social media and all the rest. I mean, lots of schools did take precautions and tried to be accommodating. There's a huge multiplicity of issues with peer assessments or peer feedback and how students would stay motivated because it was such an elongated uh, in the UK with mm. a good three months of virtual schooling, you know. So the levels of motivation, how do you keep 
the students motivated? How do you engage the whole family to make it a fun environment? And how do you factor in some sort of peer interaction? And where did this peer interaction happening? You know, it, uh, it wasn't until you mentioned that that I it reminded me of Zoom bombing, which uh, hit the headlines, I think, in March this year. And that seems yeah. like a lifetime ago. Um, for our listeners who've forgotten or can't uh, don't know what Zoom bombing is, it's where people uh, unauthorized enter into Zoom rooms, uh, Zoom classrooms or Zoom meetings um, and provide content that is inappropriate, et cetera. We've talked about a lot of the, the concerns and the ethical issues as well as the anxiety and fatigue. But I suppose in a more uplifting direction, what are the opportunities that this lockdown is presenting for educators to adapt their teaching? It's a steep learning curve. There are opportunities. This embedding a lot more pastoral care, accounting for gamification a little bit more. I think in other settings it would be interesting. And obviously, the learning technologist needs to work very, very hard and very closely with the academics or with the teachers to help out design these things. And perhaps educators have been able to reflect a, a little bit more on how to use digital pedagogies and how to embed them in the learning design. Also the learning that you cannot simply replicate the experience of physical teaching in an online setting using the same methodologies or even resources on Zoom. <laughs> you know, there's a sense of adaptability and the cues and directions and communications are different. And as I said, it involves the, the, the pedagogy of digital distance learning is, is kind of different than this sort of, as I said earlier, the instant COVID pedagogies and, and stuff. So there is a good blend of synchronous and asynchronous, doing fun videos, engaging students sometimes to do fun videos with their tutors, uh, lecturers or teachers as a way to create this kind of sense of learning community is important. I think these are the sort of things that I think people can take forward, but all these require additional resources from the universities because there are opportunities, there are countless opportunities and you've got perhaps more media because all your resources are increasingly mediatized, if you like, at the moment. However, yeah. in order to deliver that and to offer them in a package that can be understandable and accessible, need more people to work on it. You, you know, <laughs> and there's huge staffing issues. You can't True. ask the academic who is working flat out to design and deliver courses, to offer pastoral care, to be 24-7 responding to emails from amongst your students from all over the world to also design and deliver all these things for an online publication, for a, an open educational resource and all that. But it's impossible. And the thing is, this is where universities, yes, have opportunities and they can miss opportunities. Now, we're quickly running out of time, but there's this one passage right at the end of the article that I read, which I think is really nice, which is, um, on a final note, often health threats and fears of illness make us want to stop time. If stopping time is imposed upon us, then we might as well take advantage of it to humbly embrace our humanity and to care for ourselves, our children and others, even from a distance, who need our caring more than ever before. On a final question, how do you think that the education landscape will change and adopt more of the caring aspects within it in the future? 
there is a huge uproar at the moment about mental health as a result of COVID in young children, young people, and students, and everybody, really. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and because, you know, it's obviously it's, this is not over and it's going to go on for quite a long while. <laughs> There's um, increased priorities, I think, for universities and for schools to cater more for mental health, well-being and pastoral care. I do not know, I'm not in the capacity to know how well they will do because there's always a lot of talk about what we should do, but how this is going to be carried out in practice. I'm not sure and I don't want to be pessimistic, to be honest, but I'm not super hopeful either. The thing is like, there is an upsurge, obviously, for mental health professionals, but I'm not sure how much financial resources are there to accommodate. And I'm not sure there's enough time for academics or support staff who are overstretched already or teachers to be trained. (laughs) I'm sure that there will be evaluations here and there and everybody talks about the need of it. Everybody talks about putting more resources to it. But I'm not sure how it's going to pan out, how much existing burnout is going to come forward in the future, existing burnout, you know, from people that are re-entering this space who are already burnt out and they have not had the chance to heal themselves properly. You know, these are personal reflections. What I see is that I don't think that anyone is slowing down anytime soon. Uh, If anything, these things keep seem to be wanting to speed up. So I know that everybody knows that there's huge issues and there's the research is there to say and warn about the issues, the aftermath and the impact of this and mental health. Yeah, it's quite a struggle at the moment. And your article does say that it's about time that we all engage in pedagogy that makes the share of that responsibility more equal. I suppose to end it on an uplifting note, though, there is that opportunity there if we want to try and uh, take that. um, And we very much should. Uh, Goethe, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, It was a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, Thank you for inviting me and uh, it has been an honour and I'm really glad that you offered me the space to reflect upon so many aspects that only starting to re-engage after a little break I had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure to speak with you and we're very early in uh, the days of uh, the pandemic um, and there are a lot of questions that still need to be answered but it's great to see that there are people asking those questions. Hi again, everybody. It's Anton here once more. As ever, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the pod. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and learned as much as I did as well. As I mentioned in the pod, we do have a new publication called QS Global Education News, which has been launched. You can download a copy of that from qs.com or wownews.com and the soon-to-be qs-gen.com. So get yourself a copy of that. And as always, on behalf of the head of programs, Ms. Monica Hunung-Katan, good night. And on behalf of me, give your family a hug. Thank you.